You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. O Lord God, King of the universe, kindle your Holy Spirit in our midst that it might enliven our ears, our minds, our hearts in the presence of your word, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Once again, um, my thanks to all of you for being willing to share this time with me. It's been such a privilege for me and Annette to be amongst you, and I give thanks for this blessing. So thanks you all. I am a great believer in normalcy when it comes to human life. That is to say, I think that what most people intuit as being important to their lives is in fact important, is indeed actually from God. Social psychologists have made some broad lists of these normal things that are, they say, important for a flourishing life, things like security and peace, food, intimacy, meaningful work. And we can be even more concrete, parents, a family, a life's partner, friendship, children, the social space, to share things and to receive them from others, in a sense that these things are those that others can support us in. That is to say, a normal community in which normal things are valued. And ultimately, I personally believe that these are all the things that make a life good, indeed, that constitute life itself, a life, any life, your life, my life and our lives as utter gifts from God. God took on our lives for us, as I said yesterday. And thus, God is the creator of normalcy. Not only should we not forget this, as if God might be uninterested in a normal life, but we should have a holy confidence in it. Now, of course, normalcy has been under attack, and not just recently, but from time immemorial, because human sin is in part what it is because it rebels against the fundamental gifts that God has made of and for us. So things like war and political oppression and human disdain and denigration are all ordered so as to destroy normal life. Normalcy, in other words, is fragile. In fact, it's extraordinarily vulnerable. And you can ask anybody in Ukraine right now or around the world about what that means. And one problem that has arisen from this long history of sin, however, is that in the process of this growing disdain for normalcy, normalcy itself has become in a social way, utterly devalued, as if because of its fragility, it must not be worth that much in the first place. 
And I have to admit that religion in general, and sometimes Christianity itself in particular, has sometimes been an agent of this devaluing of normalcy. What's really important, it has sometimes been suggested, and sometimes even insisted upon, is something else, something durable, permanent, invulnerable, the spiritual heart, heaven, the unimpeded soul, ascetic renunciation, and so on. And for ages, and with a vengeance more recently, there has been a claim that the normal is too little, it's too banal, it's too constricting. We need abundance, we need breadth, we need extent, we need wonders exploding around us. And so things like Christian empire, mega-congregations, numbers, these are all somehow threads. It has been felt to immortality that the normal aims to stunt, or so it is felt. Now, I don't think that most of us actually buy into these attacks on normalcy, but they have sort of given some of us, at least, a bad conscience about it. And we do often get caught up in the energies of this bad conscience. Can just having a family or being in one or tending some good friendships, working hard more or less for them and not more than that, can that be really enough? We ask ourselves this. After all, everything dies. There has to be more than normalcy, surely. More than the life for us that God, as we talked about yesterday, journeyed on foot for. Well, maybe. Actually, I'd say surely there is more. I wouldn't deny it. But Paul tells us, as do other parts of the New Testament, to be content with what you have. First Timothy, Hebrews, is more than once this is said. And it's enumerated, things like food, clothing, your partner, and so on. Content. That's not a charge to submissive humiliation, however. In fact, the Greek word translated as contentment has the connotation of strength, even strength in battle. The word is used for that. In other words, be strong, Paul says, with what you have. It's simply a way of saying that the normal gifts of God constitute the depth of his life shared with you, that is, your life. Contentment with the normal, in other words, manifests the strength of life itself. Yes, these things die. But that's not because they're weak. Rather, they die because they're God's gifts in the first place. Death is but a way of saying, all his. Now, I reflected a bit yesterday on the way that God enters our life and indeed touches and takes on every aspect of it through his death in Christ Jesus. That's the great self-offering of God for us. That is, in fact, what our life is. Our life is literally given to us in the death of Christ, the God-man, so that the whole of who we are and what we do is found there 
as a divine gift. Our lives are and are filled with mortal goods, but goods, that is the aura of their miraculousness, that they're gods to give and gods to take. So I want us to reflect then in the next few moments on the obverse of God's great act of self-offering, which is the way our life thereby becomes in itself an offering back in return. God touches every part of our life through his death, and we enter into this vivifying, his life-giving gift then, by offering every part of our life to him. We proclaim that we are alive, that our lives are gifts of God by giving them to him. But I need to Repeat what I stressed yesterday. Jesus' death is not just his dying at such and such a moment. His death is rather the culmination, the gathering up of an entire life that unfolded from his birth. Jesus' death is a traversal of that life, dare I say, of that very normal life to its end, passing through all the normal steps from birth through adulthood so that in his death he pours out the fullness of his human life, which now embodies the infinite fullness of God into our own quite normal lives. And what about our deaths? Will they now culminate our lives in the sense of gathering them up, of having lives suffused by God's life and pouring that out again? And again, the issue is to avoid a kind of momentary, punctiliar notion of this truth. It's not just that at this or that point or moment we will die. Rather, the whole of our lives, in their myriad moments, their myriad activities, is what our deaths take up. After all, our lives as a whole are a set of just all these normal mortal goods, good things, Limited things, yes, but normal things in and of themselves that gain their strength because they are from God. They belong to God to be offered to the great for us of God. Now, the idea that our lives from birth to death are actually for us also a great sacrifice is probably one that strikes most contemporary people as unattractive and to a certain kind of modern Christianity, is actually perverse. Didn't Christ die as a sacrifice for sin once and for all, as we hear from Hebrews, so that no longer do we need perpetually to come before the altar to sacrifice ourselves over and over again? Let me read just the first uh, opening verses of the second chapter of Peter's first epistle. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, and by it you may grow up unto salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, and note the word come, which yesterday Jesus says, Lo, I come. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, 
you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter complicates the simple picture of only one sacrifice. There is one, truly, at the foundation of all. God's for us. And yet, in doing so, we become sacrifices. You also, as living stones, are built up into a spiritual house, he says, as a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices now acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the the word spiritual here in Greek, pneumatikos, as in pneumatic or pneumatology, having to do with the spirit, sometimes the word spiritual is taken to mean the opposite of material. So the spiritual must be in our head or in our heart or something like that. As I mentioned earlier, our fear of normal life's fragility often makes us think that there is therefore something beyond the normal that's better, that's invulnerable, that is abnormal with respect to the world in its invisible permanence. But that is not what pneumaticos, spiritual, means here. Spiritual here means filled with the Spirit, somehow given over, taken over by the Holy Spirit. And as I understand this in the context of Peter's writing, it means that all these normal aspects of our lives now are the Spirit's own to offer as a sacrifice. The filling up of the normal is what God's self-offering does. As in the image of death I suggested yesterday in the form of water, It seeps into every corner, infuses, suffuses. Indeed, it's the Spirit that hovers over the waters of creation at the beginning of Genesis. It is the Spirit that fills up the dust of Adam that makes him a living being. You could say that it is the Spirit who gives us our created bodies, as it were. He doesn't take them away. He gives them to us. And so spiritual sacrifices are still about bodies, not about getting rid of them or moving beyond them. And Paul says this himself over and over again in the most famous place at the beginning of Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Your bodies, alive now with God, God for us, are now given over to God. Your body is, in fact, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he says elsewhere, as you know, like a temple. And hence, everything you do with it is an offering, whether you realize it or not. Literally, a sacrifice, as he puts it, a making holy, a handing over to God. Every nook and cranny of our normal lives is therefore infinitely important to God. He has offered himself, poured himself into every corner of it. And so too, every corner and aspect of our life is now caught up in his, this great act, 
of offering as in a rushing current that sweeps us along into God's own culminating life anew. You could say, and in fact, Peter says it in his second epistle, much, much uh, debated what he means, but you could say God's self-offering divinizes all the daily bits and pieces, the normal parts that make up a life. Now, there are a couple of things that follow from this that are things deeply important, I believe, to our happiness. Happiness, of course, is something we're all interested in, I assume, just as were the Greeks and the Romans who invented that great pastime of searching for the happy life. Today, we have our own Aristotles and Ciceros churning out books on how to be happy. They're now located in the self-help section of Amazon, but also in the religion section, too. Let me single out among them an intriguing recent volume written by a man named Oliver Berkman, who was a longtime and highly lauded columnist for the British newspaper The Guardian. Berkman is part of what some have called the death awareness movement. As I say, people who want us to take death seriously but have no real place to locate it. Just know it. That's sort of the point. Know it. Be aware of your deaths. That will help you live a more balanced existence. This is why it ends up in the self-help section. Berkman's book is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. 4,000 weeks, as the title puts it, is the number of weeks that make up an 80-year lifespan, more or less. And Berkman has long, it turns out, been writing about the importance of taking our mortal limitations seriously. He wants us to let go of the burdens and anxieties of a productivity-oriented mindset and culture. And instead, he argues, we should approach our lives in a way that realizes that there is little we can really accomplish in them, and thus we should just tone everything down drastically if we want to find some relative calm in our existence. Now, he's not against people trying to do good things with their lives, to be moral, to enjoy other people. Just don't expect that there's something that comes out of all this, he says, beyond small bits of satisfaction here and there in the face of death's final severing of all meaning. You can do what you can, and you can enjoy what you can, but just don't hope for too much more than that. Now, Berkman, in a deliberately provocative turn, goes on in this book to say that hopelessness of a certain kind is actually something that can further our happiness. And I quote him here. To hope for a given outcome is to place your faith in something outside of yourself and outside the current moment. The government, for example, or God, or the next generation of activists, or just the future, to make things all right in the end, unquote. And he says, this is a recipe for exhaustion and disappointment. Well, I don't know what you make of that. It is provocative. And I actually agree with some of what he says here. By demanding so, so much of just this and that, whatever we count as good, thinking that this will last forever somehow, 
we tend to lose everything else. And in the end, the very thing we are after isn't actually attainable anyway. And there's a sense here that maybe the normal is enough. But then Berkman misses something infinitely crucial, of course. His concept of a normal human life is horrifically stunted. A human life, he says, and I quote him, just happens. We are all happenings, he says. As I say, random appearances of something or other that comes and then goes, like the spume on the ocean waves, which, by the way, is a long popular image for this kind of vision that he has. Now, obviously, the Christian faith rejects this fundamentally. We are not just happenings. And belief in God is not an escape either. Rather, God is the beginning of all things, as well as their end. We are creatures. That's the key word. Creatures, not happenings. Creations, which obviously implies from a creator, made by God, given life by God. Yes, our lives are small in a real way. They're limited. They are mortal. But they are also infinitely and marvelously good because they are God's creations. For as I have pressed, we are given life by God because God has given his own life for us. It's all his. The fact that we are strictly limited creatures, at best 4,000 weeks or so to live and only a few things we can actually do and accomplish in that time, doesn't detract from this fact. Rather, it underlines the possibility we have of shaping our lives as a gift from God, the infinite, glorious truth of all things, normalcy divinized. So the first secret to happiness, I think, well, it's not the first, but it's a main one, is to recognize that our lives are indeed reasonable offerings, in Paul's language, which, by the way, is taken up by the Book of Common Prayer Communion service. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, our bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. You're all familiar with that part of the prayer. Our lives are such that we can, in fact, order them to God. They're not too complicated, nor are they too uninteresting. They are not just happenings. They are offerings. With just what they are, with just their normal ingredients and acts, we can, as Malcolm Muggridge described Mother Teresa's life, make of them something beautiful for God. The second secret to happiness is to take up this recognition and to follow it out. Take stock of a single day in your life. Today, maybe it was yesterday, tomorrow. Detail, it's ours for a moment. There is a lot that we do in them, I realize, but actually, not all that much. Can we simply offer up each element? The bowl of cereal? 
the online banking fiasco when you press the wrong button, the trip to work, cleaning the dishes, talking to someone with a sense of interest and care. It sounds kind of maudlin and sentimental, I realize. But remember that, in fact, the Christian tradition has been full of just this particular exhortation. And I'm not suggesting anything either novel or culturally debased. The Anglican priest and poet George Herbert, one of whose hymns is in our hymnal, begins that hymn, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. And then he goes on to mention things like sweeping the floor and other acts of drudgery. Do them for God. And then there's, of course, Brother Lawrence, most famously washing the dishes in the monastery and practicing, as he puts it, opening this act up to God's presence. But long before them, there was St. Benedict, who ordered a round of common life in the monastery in which every aspect, from waking to sleeping, toil and eating, was lifted up to God. And long before him, there was St. Paul, who tells Timothy that every food, and indeed all the things God has given us in creation, if received with prayers of thanksgiving, is rendered literally fit for offering, is, as he puts it, sanctified. Our life, our normal life, sanctified. The issue is less what do we offer than how much of what we have we offer. How much of my life am I offering? The more and more one offers with a prayer, with thanks, with attentive regard, and attention is what grows in this habit, the more one's life is exposed to the glorious breath, the cleansing waters of Christ's death, which is his life offered as it seeps through every pore of our own. That's happiness, I'm convinced. And I should add, it is the basis upon which all the other things we think are so important have been always at the center, or sometimes at the center, of everything that is preached about for well or good. Good works, doing courageous things for Christ, being extravagantly generous, tithing, giving your life away for another in hard circumstances. All the saintly things we rightly extol are based grow out of, through the Spirit, the offering of our normal life to God as the center of our being. It's the only basis for such a witness because it is the foundation of any complete and trusting faith, a faith that cannot exist when the normal immortal goods of our lives are things we hold back from God. You remember the observation of Jesus at the temple. He looked up, and he saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And Jesus said, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than all of the others. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her poverty hath cast in all the living 
she had. Now, this story is often dredged up for stewardship sermons, I realize. But all her living here is literally the whole of her life. Hapanta ton beyond. The whole of her life is what she has offered. All the stuff, then, you can think about it, that went into these few coins that she had, her labor, her saving, her arguments with her children who wanted the money, I don't know, relations at, at, at home, in the market, on the street, and in the interactions behind all of these things. The point here is not, as Oliver Berkman might say, that she's satisfied with the limits of her wealth. Rather, the point is that she has offered the breadth of her hours to God in this necessarily limited way. Necessary, because this is simply who she is. But that is exactly what any true work of art is. It's like a small and exquisite etching traced within the constraints of a single sheet of paper. What she did and what we too can do is indeed to offer something beautiful for God. This Holy Week that we are all about to enter into in a few days, we are given once again the opportunity to reflect upon and to renew the crafting of our lives as graceful, gracious, grace-filled offerings. We are not quiet spectators of a transcendent death of a man on a cross on a hill far away. Rather, we're disciples of a beautiful life, the death of which was the transfiguration of what we have been doing every day and all the year long, in any case. Jesus took our life so that we might give it to him again, now gleaming in the reflection of his glory. Dare we take our daily lives that seriously? And of course the answer is, what else could we possibly do? As we just sang, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In the name of Jesus Christ, our life. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.